This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African Studies a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Katz, the host for this episode. Uh, Today, we'll be talking to Professor Susanna Fiorata about her book, Global Nomads, an Ethnography of Migration, Islam, and Politics in West Africa. Professor Fiorata, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, So I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit more about yourself. Um, What experiences motivated you to get a PhD and how did your academic interests develop? Yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm from a small town in Kentucky and had not really traveled outside the U S at all before I went to college and kind of fell into anthropology by accident and realized that it, was a way of challenging me to see the world in a lot of different ways that I hadn't imagined before. Um, And so I always, starting from then, I always thought that I would like to, I would like to do more with this anthropology thing and, and use ethnography, the tool that anthropologists and many other scholars also use to try to go somewhere um, usually and, and just really dedicate yourself for a long time to try to get to know a place that is unfamiliar to you and people um, who don't necessarily share your worldviews. Um, so that was my, like, my very kind of naive college student coming to this um, field. And, um, and so after college, I, I always I had the idea that I wanted to go back and do a PhD, but first... I decided I really needed to get some more experience um, in, a, in a place that was not where I was from. So I joined the Peace Corps and got sent to the Republic of Guinea in West Africa. And so um, I often tell people when they ask, oh, why do you work in Guinea? I, I sometimes I say, well, Guinea chose me. I didn't really choose Guinea because I, I just kind of got sent there. And it was it turned out to be such an interesting place. Um, and so the two years of Peace Corps, I, I lived and worked in a, in a particular small town um, and really was struck from the beginning by just how 
connected globally things were in this kind of small town life that um, that me going in as a middle-class American, I was not really expecting. Um, so like, I, I remember one of my first conversations with my, my neighbor during the Peace Corps years was she, she was this, you know, old woman and she was cooking this leaf sauce um that was and she was kind of teaching me how to do it and I was asking questions and at that time my my Pular language skills were kind of were they were just rudimentary so I was just learning and she told me um that she had she explained that she had tried to send some of these leaves some of these dried leaves to her son in um in Portugal but they had been uh, confiscated because um, the the customs authorities thought they were drugs, and so here was this. Uh, it just kind of, for me, it was one of the first moments where it kind of encapsulated. Well, this seems to be this this old woman who like belongs to something a very a lifestyle that's very different from mine. But here she's talking about um, her son who who lives in on a different continent um, and her efforts to connect with him. Um, and then awareness of drugs and the international drug trade, um, which it turned out was a concern for a lot of people in Guinea. So, um, so all of this is to say that I, I kind of got into it by accident, but just really being struck by how um, internationally connected this small town was. And there were lots of other small towns in Guinea that were the same. Um, migration was was very common. People were always talking about where they had been or where they had relatives or where they wanted to go. And and it wasn't um, it, it wasn't it wasn't a disruption in life. It was it was part of life. It was not um, a migration crisis that we're kind of used to hearing about in the news. Um, and and not to say that there's not some crisis aspects of of issues around migration, certainly, but, um, but migration doesn't have to be a crisis. Um, it can be seen as a normal part of life. Um, so I, I held that thought and, and those kind of experiences with me when I started my PhD program in anthropology. And, um, and I had the idea that I, I wanted to go back to Guinea and do field work and, um, and I was interested at the time at how Guinea itself was being, often talked about as a country that was kind of pre-crisis or about to go into crisis. So at the time, the president, um, Lansana Conte, who had been president since he took over in a military coup in 1984, and this was in 2006, he was, um, he was ill, he was kind of absent from public life. People were talking about he's going to die any day and then the whole country could be plunged into crisis. And if Guinea goes down, it could bring all of West Africa with it. And so there were a lot of like framings of Guinea in international humanitarian kind of aid and development discourses as this country that is, is kind of could, could very well descend into violent conflict and civil war. And that this would have a, a profoundly disruptive effect on the whole region. And I got interested in the disparity between that language and then just the kind of the normal everyday life of people going about their days um, that I had come to know while I was living in Guinea. And, and that actually some people were doing pretty well for themselves, um, partly based on 
the the money that they were able to bring back from um, from abroad or or that their family members sent them from abroad. So so I wanted to I started out wanting to investigate this difference between um, a, a state that by many measures is doing pretty badly, a nation state that is is you know, on the top of the um, you know, poverty indicators and, and politically being talked about as either in crisis or about to have a crisis. And then within that, a lot of people's experiences of, of, of some kind of relative prosperity that they're, they're able to do well, kind of despite, um, the general insecurity. And so, um, so that's sort of where this project grew out of. And, and I started out focusing on remittances and how remittances can help people stave off insecurity, but it quickly expanded into looking at other aspects of life um, and how migration just kind of connected to everything from um, gender roles to religion, to um, involvement in political campaigning and, um, and and beyond. Great. Well, let's now kind of uh, get to the book. I mean, we've already sort of started to get on some of the kind of the key themes. But since I imagine um, some of our listeners may not know much about Guinea, perhaps it would sort of help to start if you could just give us a general overview um, uh, of sort of Guinean history, um, particularly the Futujalan region, which you know you base most of your research. Yeah. Um, that's a great question because I, it's always one of the first things that I, I end up um, talking about with people because you're right, um, very few um, people, at least in the United States, have, have much knowledge of Guinea um, and many... Um, anyway, there's a lot to learn. So uh, Guinea, um, Guinea itself was a former French colony um, in West Africa, um, and Guinea's kind of claim to fame that a lot of Guineans today will tell you about um, with a lot of pride, regardless of their ethnicity, is that um, Guinea was the first um, French West African colony to achieve independence. And that, um, that in fact, when France offered its West Africa colonies the choice between immediate independence or uh, a kind of gradual assisted independence, but with continued control by France, Guinea was the only one that chose um, immediate independence. Um, and, and that after that point, um, Guinea kind of had this, on, on the one hand, was disadvantaged in a lot of um, dealings with the French who were not that pleased that, um, that Guinea decided to break away so abruptly, but, but this continues to be a point of pride. Um, and the Futa Jalon within Guinea is, is this, uh, it's a highland region in the middle of the country. Um, it's beautiful. There's waterfalls, there's amazing hiking. Um, but it also happens to be the, kind of the the area where um most uh it, it, it's a former theocracy it's a former um islamic theocracy um where there was a a kind of kingdom kingdom or empire of the futa jalon um from the mid 18th to the end of the 19th century 
um, that, um, that had a very kind of stratified society where there were, um, there were rulers and there were, um, people who were kind of serfs, um, and, and sort of owed their labor obligations to the people, to the more elite class. Um, and so a lot of those, um, stratifications are still around today. So people are very aware in the Futajelon of, um, are they descended from one of the ruling classes? Are they descended from one of the lower classes? Um, are they descended from um, people who were being brought through the area to be sold, to be trafficked into the Atlantic slave trade, which was also, which was a part of what was happening at the time that the theocracy of the Futajelon was um, was in place. So, so there's, there's very much an awareness of history in the Futa Jalon. Um, and so first of all, there's this, there's this sense of dis- being descended from this empire. But then if you go back before the empire, um, the people who, um, the, the ethnic group that is predominant in the Futa Jalon today, Fube, they're descended from, um, nomadic pastoralists who traveled um, all across West and, and Central Africa um, through many um, present day countries. And, um, and so the movement was just a, a tremendous part of the stories that people tell about their heritage. So some of these nomadic pastoralists settled in the highlands of what is today the Futajelon and um and and at, at this it's a complicated kind of how exactly it happened, but they ended up establishing this theocracy um, and then becoming rulers over the area. So some Guineans in looking at this um, this history, so some non-Fube will say, well, Fube are not really Guinean because they they came from far away. Their ancestors came from far away. And sometimes Fube will say that about themselves, that they're not really Guinean. But um, but in the same breath, they'll turn around and say that they're very much Guinean and, and that being um, part of Guinea has, um, has a tremendous importance to them, often linking to this proud moment of independence from France. And um, so there's really, uh, it's, it's kind of, there's a lot of complications and paradoxes about what it means to be Fuwe, what it means to be Guinean. Um, but, but that's just... That's just some of what um, is interesting to know about Guinea. Um, Guinea also, I mean, it's it's a place that not many people have heard of, but it's the world's largest, it has the world's largest bauxite reserves. Um, and bauxite is the mineral used to produce aluminum. Guinea has iron ore, um, diamonds, gold, um, lots of forest and water resources. So um, kind of the refrain about Guinea that gets told in a lot of news media is that it's this country that's rich in resources, but it's the poorest country in the world. Um, so that's that's maybe one way of introducing it to people who have never heard of it before. But then it gets so much more complicated in terms of what um, what all of that means for for Guineans themselves. And I guess on, on the topic of complications, I, I know that the process of doing research for this book uh, did not go exactly as planned. Um, so how did current events uh, kind of end up shaping the direction that your research ultimately took? 
Yeah, um, that's that's absolutely true. So I had this I had this really idyllic vision when I started fieldwork that I was gonna um, stay in one place for a really extended period of time and really get to know um, people and the community and, and and become very much embedded as part of ethnographic fieldwork. And um, so three months into my longest fieldwork stay, um, where I, I had, I had gone through the process of establishing myself in a research site and was starting to get to know people. Um, and about three months in, there was a massacre of civilian protesters by the reigning military junta that was in charge at the time. Um, so the president that I mentioned earlier, Lansana Conte had finally died. A junta had taken power. Um, and the junta leaders were starting to say that they would stay in power. Um, some civilians protested and there was this really horrific, um, massacre. It happened on September 28th, 2009, it's still called the September 28th massacre or sometimes the stadium massacre because um, soldiers basically barricaded protesters into the stadium and start in the national stadium and started shooting um, and raping um, dozens of women. Um, So this was, this was a really awful time in Guinea. Um, I was not anywhere near this, protest. I was not working in Conakry. I was in the Futajalon, which is probably a whole day's journey away. Um, and I didn't feel that I was in any personal danger or that I was at risk from this, from, from the events that were happening. Um, but all the same, I was at the time I was funded by a Fulbright, which is through the U S state department and the state department was evacuating all U S citizens. The embassy was shutting down to just a skeleton crew, um, everybody was leaving because there was this kind of thought that this is it. This is, this could finally be the war that, um, that people have been talking about or, or the beginning of this long conflict that, that people were thinking that Guinea would descend into. Um, so I had to, I had to do something else on the fly. Um, at first I was evacuated to, uh, to Mali. Um, and then I ended up, transferring my grant money to Dakar, Senegal. Um, so there was quite a large community of Guinean Fulbe migrants in Dakar, and I had already spent a little bit of time there. And I had already been planning to to spend some time there as part of this research. I just didn't think it would come so soon. So I ended up um, just um, totally changing. Um, I did the best I could to kind of stay in touch um, over the phone and email with people that I had gotten to know already in my field work. Um, but I had to sort of start all over again, um, get to know Dakar, make contacts in the Guinean and Fulbe community there. Um, and, and that ended up bringing a bit of a different focus to some of my research that might have happened otherwise. And, and then that sort of continued when, um, through just a convoluted series of events that are kind of almost like too spectacular to believe, um, there ended up being um, a removal of the previous junta and then um, 
elections that were declared democratic, Guinea's first democratic elections um, since independence in 1958, the following year. So I ended up as part of my research kind of following how people were um, responding to and engaging in this process of the elections that um, that no one had been thinking would actually would be happening when I started my research. So, um, so I ended up having to move around. I ended up having this um, this sort of new angle of of democracy and um, electoral politics that I hadn't expected to have to sort of grapple with as part of it. Um, and, and then I ended up, uh, well, I, I did end up going back and spending the last, um, I forget how many months in Guinea of my research, but, but I did get to kind of come back full circle and then actually be there for the elections and see um, where things led to in that moment. Great. Um, so for your first chapter, you kind of, you start before that September 28th massacre. This is kind of when you're still um, in Guinea. And you describe in detail when the president then in 2009 visited Putajalam. Um So to start, can you kind of like describe the visit, sort of given that you were, were there? Yeah. Um, so this was just a few days before that massacre. And it was such a surreal um, day and the president who um, who was named Dadis uh, that was kind of his nickname Captain Musa Dadis Kamara but everyone called him Dadis he this was going to be his first time leaving the capital city of Conakry since coming to power months earlier so it was kind of a big deal and he chose the Futa Jalon he chose the city of Labe which is the biggest city in the Futa Jalon and the people around me were saying he's doing this to make a statement um, he's doing this to say that um, you all may be kind of the most um, economically powerful people in Guinea, which is sort of the reputation that Fulbay have. Um, you might have designs on the presidency, but I'm going to show you how powerful I am. And that's, that's sort of how the people around me were perceiving it and, and, and talking about Daddy's intentions. Um, and, and they very much saw this as, um, as a challenge to the, the theocratic legacy, the sort of historical legacy of um, that, that people in the Futajalan still talk about, like we are descended from this theocracy. We have this sort of imperial kind of um, heritage um, and, and Dadis is threatened by that. Um, and so, um, so it was on the one hand, it was, everyone was talking about it as, um, as, with, with a lot of mistrust of daddies and kind of, but at the same time thinking, well, we are more powerful than him. Um, but um, in the end, lots of people, especially people in older generations did go out and they did go to um, cheer on daddies and go to the stadium. Um, and, and so there was this kind of um, on the one hand, this defiance from a lot of people, especially younger people against the junta, but at the same time, this um, a little bit of disappointment that the older generations were just sort of seemed to be complying, seemed to be um, not resisting at all the, the military rule that was being imposed on them. 
Um, and as I, I go into talk later in the book, then that got reinterpreted later on as, as events continued and, and people kind of then went back to that event later and, um, and retold it in ways that made the elders seem more powerful and, and that they were sort of using more mystical, um, kind of hidden powers to, to subtly defeat daddies in ways that they're, that young people didn't have access to. So, so people retold this in different ways, but I mean, the day itself, it was very surreal. It was a hot, sunny day. There was, um, there were military vehicles just flying down really fast down the street. Um, people lining up on either side of the road to watch, but everyone was just being very quiet and, and, um, and not, um, not participating as much as they might have, except for the elders who were kind of passing forward into the stadium. Um, and then the the kind of moment that um, that stood out the most to me was when um, this kind of military fighter jet started zooming really loud down, really, it seemed really close to the ground um, and, and, and it, it kind of made, I ended up watching the um, daddy's speech from nearby the stadium, but we could hardly hear what he was saying just because the, this, um, this aircraft was so loud and it was just zooming back and forward. But, but it just seemed like, you know, if this is, if what they want to communicate is that we are dominating you militarily, then um, that was doing the job. Yeah, and as you hinted at, you know, there was a kind of reversal of this idea of the elders being kind of uh, subservient, um, specifically in terms of this sort of road. So do you want to kind of expand on kind of how that? Yeah, um, yeah, this was so interesting to me, this story about the road. So when I got to Dakar, um, I started... I just sort of by accident overheard a friend talking with somebody else about this, this day in Labe where daddies had come. And, um, and I, so I asked them to wait, can you explain to me what you just said? And, um, and so they, it, they said, Oh, so it turned out that when daddies went into Labe that day, he, um, he went into the city on a bad road and, um, and they said, every city has a bad road and a good road. And the leader of a country should never go into a city on a bad road. And so the, the elders of Labe met Dadis at the, like the, the start, the gate of the city. And they told him, you know, you should go this way on the good road. But, um, but he didn't believe them. Or maybe he just wanted to show that um, they're um, kind of like the mystical um, power of this place didn't matter to him. And so he just went right into town on the bad road. Um, and, um, and this was the first that I had heard of it. And, and it, it, um, so I was really interested, but I didn't know if this was just these two guys who happened to be talking about it, but then I just started asking around and, once I started asking like, Oh, and so what happened with daddies in the road? I got so many different um, accounts of this and, and basically all kind of saying, yeah, daddies took the the bad road into town. Um, and, and as a result, that's why he's no longer in power. So, um, 
within a couple months of of this visit to Labe and of the massacre that happened a few days later in Conakry, Daddy's himself was shot in the head by one of his own men and ended up being medically evacuated um, and ultimately removed from power. Um, and so, so Daddy's had this own dramatic story of a downfall and uh, Fube in, in Dakar um, we're, we're, we're telling the story in a way that traced that downfall back to the actions of the elders in Labe when they met Daddy's um, and they, they welcomed him. They were very courteous, but they, he, he went down the bad road. And so in a way for the people who are telling the story, it was the power of Labe, the kind of um, this ongoing legacy, this powerful legacy of the theocracy that was continuing to be felt um, in everyday ways had resulted in daddies being removed from power. Great. Um, so yeah, as you've sort of hinted, you've now kind of arrived um, in Dakar and you're kind of getting a, sen- a sense of sort of the Fubei population um, there, can you just describe for us a little bit, kind of, what is the extent of the Fubei population in Dakar, as well as sort of some of the typical types of work that you found that they occupied? Yeah. So um, there are the, the Fubei themselves would tell me that there were that there were one million. Guinean Fulandakar, or 2 million Fulandakar, or even 3 million Fulandakar. They were very, um, people threw out numbers like this a lot, really big numbers. Um, So I don't know exactly what what a good numerical estimate would be. Um, And it depends kind of how you draw the boundaries around the city. But but Dakar is is a big bustling city, and if you go through it, you are likely to find Guinean Fule selling fruit, um, selling vegetables, running um, boutiques like little corner stores, um, uh, selling peanuts by the side of the road, um, selling um, cloth that comes from the Futajalon. So a lot of um, people from the Futajalon go there to sell things. Um, and, um, and I found pretty early on, um, well, I had found this on a previous visit because somebody had told me, oh, if you go to Dakar, just visit all the fruit sellers and you'll find that they're, they, they all speak Pular because they're full bay from the Futa Jalon. So, so that was kind of one of my first ways that I just went around the city and I talked to people selling fruit. Um, and, and indeed, um, almost all of them spoke Pular with me. Um, I just pretty quickly started greeting them all in Pular. Um, and, but, but those were all men and, um, and a lot of the other sellers that I found, um, and taxi drivers also, there were a lot of Guinean Fule. Um, it turned out to be very easy to meet men, um, from the Futa Jalon. Um, and, and I had a harder time, reorienting my frames of reference to figure out, you know, I know that there are Futajal women here because I, I have heard them talk about it in Guinea. Um, and, and so where are they? But I had been getting this information that, Oh, most of the full day they're, they're selling fruit and they're driving taxis. Um, and those are male occupations. Um, but, um, 
But what happened, what I ended up doing, and one of my most helpful sort of methods in Dakar was just walking down the street and listening and listening out for people speaking Futajal and Pular. And, and in that way, I found out that, um, as I talk about in the book, a woman that I had already met, who had, I had already been buying vegetables from, I found out that she was um, from the Futajalon, from a small town that was pretty close to where I had been doing research. And, and we ended up striking up a conversation and, and um, forming a, a relationship that was, was perhaps one of the closest of my, of my time there. Um, and, and so I just kept doing that. I kept listening out. Um, and I heard women, um, speaking Pular, um, selling vegetables, um, selling peanuts, um, selling oranges, selling fabric, just all these things that people would sell. And so I, I just started sort of following all of the leads and, um, and finding more and more people to talk to. And, and then they found me too, because it's, um, you know, I stood out, I'm a, a white American and, um, was, um, talk speaking in Pular with, um, with fruit sellers or, or vegetable sellers. And, and that made people, uh, that made me available to people too, who would come up to me and say, you know, what are you doing here? Um, and then I would be able to tell them, um, and, and in that way, it, it became very easy to meet people. And I had to, in, instead of being desperate to just talk to anyone, I had to start really picking and choosing now, who was I going to, um, to try to really find out more about their histories and, and, um, and, and figure out how, um, you know, what to pursue and what not to pursue for the, the sake of the larger project. And um, I spent about six months in Dakar. And by the time I left, I was, I had this really complicated calendar of, of pretty much going to see different groups of people all the time. And, um, and then, um, at night I would, I would go home and really hurriedly type up notes from the day on my laptop and, and try to, um, capture everything that had happened, um, before I would go out again the next day. But so it, it, it started from one or two fruit sellers and then just really exponentially expanded. Yeah. And you also sort of found, um, that sort of the full bay and Dakar were often comparing Senegal to Guinea, also wanting you to kind of do the same comparisons. So what were some of the differences that they often noted? Yeah, this was a really common question that people would ask me, um, and they seemed to really enjoy asking me, which place do you prefer, Guinea or Senegal? And um, and they, I, I would always say Guinea, <laughs> um, because I, I, I had spent more time in Guinea, I felt kind of more comfortable there. Um, Dakar was awfully hot, and the Futajalon was... As, you know, it's the highlands, it's fairly pleasant. I mean, there are all these reasons that I could give um, to myself and to them saying, oh, I prefer Guinea. Um, but then I would turn around and, and that would make people laugh. And then I would, I would start turning around the question to them and asking what they preferred. And, um, and um, most of the men that I talked to would say the same thing. Oh, we prefer Guinea. Oh, Guinea is so, um, so much better than here. Um, they would talk about fruit in Guinea. Um, but then if you really got them talking, they would start to make, um, 
they would start to compare things like infrastructure. They would start to compare um, politics and the state. And, and they would say things like, yes, of course, I prefer Guinea. You know, that's my home. Um, but um, there's no way to make a living there. Um, and, and I, I'm, I'm going out, um, for men, they would say I'm going out, I'm seeking my fortune because I, I can't make money if I stay in Guinea. Um, and, and women on the other hand would talk more about how they, sure, Guinea was home, but, um, there were no hospitals. There were very, um, bad schools. They wanted something better for their children. Um, they wanted a safer environment for themselves in giving birth to children. Um, so, so people had a variety of ways that they were constantly comparing Guinea and Senegal and, and, and I think that they were, they too were often asked by their Senegalese acquaintances, um, which place is better, Guinea and Senegal. And they felt like they were supposed to always answer, well, Senegal here is great because here is more advanced. Um, and they could see that. They, 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 they felt that some of the time, like, yes, the infrastructure is better. Um, yes, um, this place seems more to have a, a, a stronger state. But at the same time, they continue to talk about um, the, the ways that Guinea was superior and that they, they did want to be at home there. Um, but at the same time, they wanted they, people talked a lot about a strong state and wanting a strong state. And, um, and, and, and it was really interesting because I think it brings into question just debates about what, what should a state be? You know, what's the role of a state? What does it mean for a state to be strong? What does a state do for people or what should it do for people? And, um, and a lot of Guineans in Senegal saw the Senegalese state as being really, um, really appropriately strong for its people um, in terms of um, schools, hospitals, roads, um, electricity, um, other forms of infrastructure, um, the, uh, a freer press people talked about. Um, and, and all of that w- was kind of, for a lot of people, was ended up being symbolized by this statue, um, the African Renaissance monument that got kind of inaugurated while I was there in 2010 and, and the monument itself was really controversial in Senegal. Um, people thought it was not Islamic and it was a waste of money. Um, uh, it kind of depicts this, um, man and woman and child, and there's some sort of half nakedness and, um, the style, um, doesn't look very West African. It was built by um, North Koreans, actually, apparently. Um, but a lot of Guineans really liked this statue because they thought that it symbolized a strong state and they wished that Guinea had a statue like this. And so um, this was one of the ways that people um, would would bring up these comparisons of, of, of what Senegal was and what Guinea was. And they got reminded of this all the time themselves whenever they came into contact with um, Senegalese customs agents um, or border agents when they were crossing the border. Um, They were always often um, suspected of things like smuggling, of of trying to um, 
introduce disease maybe into Senegal, um, all of these um, comments that border agents would make to them um, that, that kind of made them feel that they were less than, that because they were Guinean, they were um, more under suspicion um, and, and kind of had more to prove because they came from this state that was um, less strong. So they, they were made to feel this in a lot of different ways um, from border agents and then just from regular Senegalese people that they would talk to um, who would kind of tease them about being from a, a poorer or a less developed or a less strong state. Um, and then next, you, you take a deep dive, which I appreciated, into kind of how understandings of personhood inform people's decisions to go abroad, that it wasn't just like pure economic gain, but it was something a little bit more deeper, um, specific, specifically to kind of evade uh, uselessness, as sort of people there uh, put it. So kind of first, can you kind of describe kind of why is this important uh, for people in Putajalam? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think this is, this is a big question about what is it, what does it mean to be a person and a social person and to be regarded as respectable by the people in your community around you? Um, so, so in the Futa Jalon for a man, um, to be a respected person to kind of achieve social personhood, um, if you're a man, you had to, you had to marry, um, and, and have children and build a house and, and support your family and kind of, um, like having these things, uh, a wife, children and a house, um, kind of would lead to you being a more respected member of society and, um, and someone that people would come to with advice, someone, um, or for advice, to ask advice, um, someone who could potentially become a leader in the community. Um, and somebody who didn't have these things was, was really looked down on or, or sort of regarded as, well, they haven't, like, they're not, um, they haven't done what they should. They're kind of, they're not, uh, they're not, they're not respected as a person in the same way. And, um, and so one, one term that people started using, um, in, in my conversations with them about this was this desire not to be useless. Um, and, and so migration for men was a way of going, uh, it was a way of, of pursuing these things, of getting money um, in order to be able to afford marriage, to afford a house um, and children, and and this idea of supporting a family. Um, but then the thing was, for so many people, migration failed, um, or it, it it didn't work out for a really, really, really long time. And so that was one of the questions that I started asking people in Dakar: was if you know if you've come here to to make money um, and you're not making any money and it's been months and you can't find a way to make money. And in fact, you've lost money. Um, you know, why don't you go home? And part of the answer was that um, just sitting in, in your village, people can see you kind of um, and, and, and they'll think that you're useless. But if you're just sitting and it's somewhere else and it's not in full view of, 
of of your parents and your extended family and the the people that you went to school with um then people can't see you being useless and and they know that um that you are pursuing this um this objective of becoming a responsible person by your absence through through not being there you're seen as trying um and so for men this was this was a way of achieving personhood even if even if a man who ended up just kind of sitting around and drinking the tea drinking tea that was kind of the stereotype of of being useless um if you're sitting around and drinking tea in your home village um people can look at you and say, oh, like that useless kid, why doesn't he go off and do something? Um, but if you're sitting around and drinking tea in Dakar with people, um, even if you're, even if you don't have a job and you're really not being any more productive, um, that's not going to be the conversation at home. The conversation at home is going to be, well, he's off, he's, he's off sort of trying to make money and, um, and having um, this adventure that is this, changing him into this, um, adult person. Um, so that was for, for men, for women. And it took me longer to see this. Um, even though it was so obvious, look in hindsight, um, men had to work so hard to afford marriage and to, um, to save up the money to get married. Um, women more often ended up having to make money as a consequence of marriage because, um, oftentimes the men who paid a lot of money up front to help the marriage happen, um, that money wasn't, it's not like it was coming consistently. Um, and after women, um, had children, they, um, they were part of a household with other people who needed support. They ended up having to, um, Often, even though in principle, a man was supposed to provide his wife with a certain amount of, of support for the household. In reality, this often didn't happen. And so women often found themselves supporting their children, supporting other people's children, um, supporting their parents, their in-laws. Um, and so for, for women, being a responsible person meant fulfilling all of these um, financial responsibilities while continuing to be this um, respectable person. Um, and, and women didn't, so women didn't go abroad to afford marriage. They didn't go abroad by themselves was the, was the idea. Um, people were always telling me, oh, women don't go, they don't go abroad to make money. They can't go abroad to make money. It's not safe for them. They would, um, the, the implication was they're, they're going to, just become sex workers because they're, um, they're not going to be protected. Um, they won't be able to do anything and they'll end up just selling themselves in order to make money. Um, the, the reality was that women went abroad all the time and maybe not strictly by themselves. Maybe it was with their husbands. Maybe it was, um, with, uh, with other relatives. Um, but sometimes it was kind of on their own and they would, um, they would sell vegetables. They would um, they would open up uh, boutiques in cooperation with other people, um, and they would they would make whatever money they could and end up supporting their families. Um, so, so a lot of this narrative about migration and making money um, it was important 
to show people that they were social, that they were social persons, that they were um, that they were able to take care of the people that depended on them, that they were responsible. And um, and even if somebody wasn't able to actually fulfill that, um, they could they could sort of perform being a responsible person by for men just going abroad, even if they weren't actually making any money there, they, they could seem like they, you know, they could show that they were trying. Um, and for, for women and, and for some men too, um, staying home, people would do all kinds of jobs, um, that were not economically rational, um, strictly. They would sell things that they weren't really making any money from. Sometimes they would lose money on, um, just very small items at markets. Um, but, but in doing this, in, in selling small things, they were showing people, look, that's, that's a responsible person. Um, he or she is not just sitting around and drinking tea. Um, they're not just lying around and being lazy. They're, they're working. Um, and so the point wasn't about how much um, guinea francs a woman was going to make from tiny little meatballs that she was selling at the market. It was, it was about... Um, look, her family and her community are seeing her make these, spending all this time making these meatballs and then going off to sell them. And then um, even if she doesn't bring home much money at the end, they know um, she's working hard for her family and she's trying to be a responsible person. Um, you also connect uh, migration to change in sort of Islamic practice um, in the region of Mutajalan. Specifically, changes brought about by kind of more reform-oriented uh, Muslims who other Fulbay sort of refer to as Ustaz. Um, so can you first kind of describe what might make someone be called Ustaz in, in Futajalan? Yeah. Um, and I know this, and this is not something that is unique to Guinea, or I, I think there are like parallels and family resemblances to this in a lot of places. But um, but in the Fouta Jalon, um, the term Ustas was used to um, to designate um, for for women someone who um, it could be used for someone who. Um, just veiled, covered her hair, um, but it could also be used for someone who um, covers her body completely, um, like wearing a full um, black kind of niqab where her face and, and even her hands um, and feet would be covered in, in gloves and socks. Um, for men, um, men who were called ustas often wore um, uh, sort of they often wore longer beards than other men did. They would sometimes wear um, pants that were cut off um, kind of mid-calf as opposed to going all the way to the ground um, and as opposed to other men who would just wear um, sometimes just jeans and T-shirts, Western style, or else um, men and women would wear um, clothing made from colorful um fabrics that you see in a lot of places around West Africa. So, so dress was one of the first things that people noticed. Um, another thing that people talked about was position of the hands during prayer. So um, people who got called ustas would often pray with their arms folded across their chests, whereas um, 
others prayed with their arms at their sides. Um, so those were some differences. They were some some things that people highlighted and talked about. And and the way that I link this to migration, uh, or the way that I see it as linked to migration, is that um, people talked about these ideas pretty explicitly as coming from somewhere else. That these these were not the Islamic practices that came from the the Fube theocracy, the Fujijalan theocracy that. Um, that was still so important to so many people. Um, and, and so this, th- these practices, the, the, these, the kind of noticeable differences in how people were um, dressing and praying, people associated them with those who had gone abroad, um, with those who, um, maybe had gone to the city and learned from family who had gone abroad. Um, it, and, and it wasn't always like a, I mean, there were, it wasn't always a one-to-one thing. There were plenty of people who went abroad and did not adopt these practices. And there were plenty of people who adopted them, even though they never went abroad, but people talked about it as this connection to, um, as, as something that's not Guinean. This is not Guinean. What people are doing is what people would say, or this is not, um, this is not, how we the Fube practice Islam is sometimes what people would say. And this um, and more sort of reform, um, so-called reform traditions of Islam, they 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 became popular throughout West Africa, you know, decades and decades and decades ago. Um, and in in other parts of Guinea, they started to take hold much earlier. But in the Futa Jalan, they really didn't start to become popular until starting in the mid 1980s. Which um, which I think is not a coincidence that this was the time when Guinea was no longer um, a, a, a so called socialist country. So Guinea's first president from um, 1958, the independence leader, Sekou Touré, from 1958 to 1984, he was a very strong proponent of, um, of African socialism. Um, he wanted um, to make Guinea a strong socialist African republic. Um, he was always, uh, he made many speeches about the socialist revolution in Guinea. Um, and this was something that really started, that really succeeded in um in bonding a lot of Guineans and, um, and, and I think really contributing to a lot of Guineans very strong sense of, um, nationalism. Um, but at the same time, um, the country was, was a lot more closed off during Tory's presidency, especially during particular stretches of it. And it was very difficult for a lot of people to leave the country um, during this time. And people who left the country were seen as traitors. If they left, it was very difficult for them to come back. Um, but after Touré died in 1984, um, people did start to come back. And a lot of the Fube, a lot of Fube, first of all, had left. And there are some, there are some reasons why that I, I didn't get into yet, but a lot of Fube say that they were particularly persecuted under Sekou Touré's presidency. So a lot of they did leave. And then when they came back, um, starting in the mid 1980s to kind of build things at home after they had been exiled for so long, this is when you start to see um, reports 
of, of Muslim reformists um, coming to the Futa Jalan or people coming back and introducing these new ideas of religion. Um, so, so people st- still talked about it in, in 2010 when I was doing this research, people still talked about it as something that, um, that was learned from far away. Um, and that people, that, that, that people were bringing it in, they were introducing this from, um, from elsewhere. And, um, and for people who didn't subscribe to reformist practices, they saw this as an innovation that, um, was therefore, according to Islam, it was not, um, not a good thing. This was not the proper way of practicing religion. Whereas the argument of reformists oftentimes was that the, the Futa Jalan was just, it was this backwater. It was behind the times people were, people had strayed from the true Islam and it was their job to bring um, Fule and the Futa Jalan to bring them to the true Islam by sort of getting rid of these, um, these non-Islamic practices that they had picked up along the way, like, um, like saint worship and um, kind of uh, other, other things, sort of mystical practices in that line of thinking. You also kind of important, give it an important kind of uh, qualification, which is that you note that a lot of people don't neatly kind of fit in kind of either kind of reform or sort of the, the sort of the way of their, their parents. So do you want to kind of maybe expand on how people could kind of have a foot in both of it? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for asking that because I, um, just in kind of sketching this out for people, I, I often end up like painting the two opposite camps, but the reality for almost everybody was, was somewhere in between. So, um, so lots and lots of people that I met, um, who, who considered themselves, um, you know, very fervently to be following in the religion of their parents. Like they did not, um, they didn't consider themselves reformist. They didn't, um, they didn't sort of ally themselves with people who came back and dressed differently than they were used to, but they would really admire the way that reformists could study the Quran and, um, and their, um, their Arabic, um, their Quranic Arabic abilities, their ability to understand, um, verses and what was written. And people thought this was very, very, um, that this was great. This was a really good thing. Um, and, and there were, there were all sorts of ways that somebody would, um, would kind of be kind of listening to arguments from, from lots of different places and, um, and kind of figuring out where they fit into all of this. So what, what ended up getting expressed most openly in conversations was this um, this concept of manners that I that I talk about in the book, and um, so a lot of um, people who um, criticized reformists would do so not on the basis of their religion, but on their manners. They would say the things that they do are rude, um, like they. They say that you shouldn't send your parents on the Hajj to Mecca, that you should um, go yourself. And then only later, um, if you if you have the money later on, only then send your parents. Well, this was completely the opposite of what most people in the Futa Jalam believed was the correct way of doing things, um, because there was there's such a way of um, 
of thinking that, you know, you provide for your parents, your parents are probably going to die first, you need to send them um, to Mecca before you think about going yourself. Um, so ways like that. Um, and people talked about reformists as being selfish, as being, um, as only caring about their own, um, individual needs or businesses, as opposed to the needs of the community. Um, I talk about the one story of how, um, there, there was a spate of break-ins um, in a village near one of my research sites. And so the community formed this sort of community watch of young men who were um, patrolling the streets at night to find out who was this thief and doing the break-ins. Um, but the reformist in town didn't join the community watch. Instead, when the thief broke in at his store, the reformist um, just attacked him with an ax and chopped his hand off and then went back to sleep. Um, this is the kind of this is the story that um, that might be an exaggeration or or possibly more than that, but it's how it was recounted to me. Um, and and then, I mean, the the reason that's interesting is because of the way that people saw this as totally fitting in with reformist behavior. Like they um, they uh, they didn't care about the community, about helping out the community, helping out other people. They only cared about what they themselves. Um, would benefit from, which was only protecting their own business or their own home and nobody else's. And then um, just happening to cut off a thief's hand in the process, which um, which was the um, Islamic law penalty for a thief. So, um, so people didn't, when people talked about their objections to reformists, they would talk about those things that, that, that there was this sort of, modern move toward not respecting elders, not respecting family, not um, sharing in the responsibilities of community. And that's what people really found objectionable. Um, there, there was much less focus on um, doctrinal differences or, um, or, or ways of, um, well, I mean, there, there was some focus on, on different ways of praying, but it was, it, there was a, a lot of what was really important to people was this issue of manners. And, and as I write about in the book, some um, outsiders from the community or people who had been abroad and come back, who were the most successful at introducing changes, were doing it by respecting um, local norms, local social responsibilities and practices, and not trying to um, overtly disrespect um, elders or community members. So, so in a way, a lot of the local rhetoric against reformists was rhetoric against kind of longstanding social values or community responsibility values that were seen as longstanding as those not being upheld anymore or those losing currency. Great. Yeah. I, I definitely see some similarities, um, in Nigeria as well. Um, uh, but anyway, so your, your last chapter looks at the kind of the 2010 um, elections. So maybe first, can you sort of describe who the main candidates were? Yeah, the two main candidates in the 2010 elections were um, Alpha Conde, who had been a political um, uh, opposition leader, um, even since the time of Sekou Touré, the first president, and and then throughout 
the presidency of the second president, Lansana Conte, from 1984 to, to 2008. So Alpha Conde had during this time um, been one of really the only for, for quite a while political opposition leader with any following. And, um, and he had spent most of his life exiled in France. He had, um, he had even been imprisoned for a while under the, um, under Lansana Conte's presidency when, um, when he was accused at one point of trying to overthrow the government. Um, and, and he, he was an ethnic Maninka or Malinke, um, but, but is also very much associated as an expatriate um, since he lived so long in France. Um, so, so on the one hand, he had um, cultivated um, an ethnic Maninka constituency, um, and Maninka were about 30% of the Guinean population, probably. Um, but on the other hand, he, um, he had a lot of international um, kind of experience in his life. So, so he was seen by some as not being really Guinean. Um, the other main candidate was Selu Dalin Jallo, and he um, he was from near Labe, so the the biggest city in the Futajalon region. So he was an ethnic Fube. Um, he was a former minister for the Lansana Conte's government. Um, so he had been um, he had been prime minister for a while, and he had been a, a, another sort of minister um, previous to that. Um, so he was seen as, instead of being an outsider, a political outsider, he was seen as someone who had been actually involved with and perhaps complicit in things that people didn't like about Lansana Conte's presidency. So for a long time, um, people in the Futajalon would were pretty critical of Selu Dalen Jalo, even though he was an ethnic Fulbe, even though he was from Labe. Um, but but that did change kind of at first gradually and then all in a rush during the period of the 2010 elections. And do you want me yeah. to keep going? Or? Yeah, I mean, my next question was like, you note that, you know, initially people seem pretty tepid. They're not even sure if they want to register to vote, but then, yeah, right. But then there is this shift. So yeah, how does that kind of come about? Yeah, um, this was interesting because I saw it happening first in Dakar among the the uh, Fulbe expatriate community in Dakar, um, where where it seemed like you know some pretty active campaigning on the one hand, coming like just meeting up with just really. Um, um, how to say like just kind of boredom with politics on the other and people not wanting to register to vote and people not being excited about Selu Dalen Jallo. And, and I should say also there were, um, there were quite a number of candidates in the first round of elections. Um, it didn't start out as being just these two figures and, and it, it could easily have been a, a third figure instead. And then all of history since then might have looked quite different, but um but Selu Dalen did um, did seem to have um, a presence in in a lot of political conversations in Dakar um, 
from from soon at, from the time soon after I got there when um, when it was announced that there were actually going to be elections that year that same year this all happened pretty quickly um, Daddy got shot in the head he was for several weeks nobody knew if he was alive or dead um, he ended up being medically um, evacuated first to Morocco and then to Burkina Faso and then finally through a, a complicated set of negotiations between the the number two in the junta and some various national and international actors, um, it was arranged that elections, democratic elections would take place that year. This was within the space of a few months. Daddy's got shot in December. The elections, the first round of elections were held in June. That's a pretty short period of time to decide that you're going to organize national presidential elections and then actually carry it out. So, um, so yeah, at, at first in Dakar, support for Daddy's uh, for sorry for um, Saludalin was um, was tepid, as you mentioned. Um, people were really skeptical. They were really skeptical about politicians in general. I think with good reason. Um, there, in 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 fifty years of independence, they they were kind of. Um, especially in Senegal, as we talked about, they were sort of being obliged to confront on a daily basis what this neighboring country had been able to accomplish that that Guinea itself had not in terms of infrastructure and um, um, political structures and systems. Um, but, but gradually, I just started to hear more and more people were... Um, we're starting to get a little more interested in Salo Dalin and, and particularly when it, in connection with narratives about it's time for Fulbe to all go home. Um, and I, I would hear this from, from older people, um, a lot of older men who had left Guinea during the Sekutori era, um, whether because of persecution or, or poverty or something else. Um, and in a lot of cases, they had never gone back. Um, and the conversation started to be when Salo Dalin comes to power, when finally uh, uh, Fulbe is in power, then we can all go home. And I started to hear this echoed in more and more places. Um, and, and, and I went to some, you know, formally organized Salo Dalin events in Dakar. I ended up, um, you know, accidentally going to a couple of what I thought were, you know, community sort of fundraising meetings for hometowns back in the Futajalam, but then turned out to be um, Selu Dalin support meetings. And, you know, this was something that as an ethnographer, I, you know, I felt like I wanted to be really careful about. I didn't want to get involved in political campaigning or to have people think that I was supporting a certain candidate, but I kept accidentally going to meetings that I thought were going to be about something else. And then they would turn into being about Selu Dalin and how do we support him? Um, so, um, so I just started to see this more and more. And then when I went back to Guinea, um, at the end of May, so just a few weeks before elections were scheduled to happen, it was, it was really a remarkable transformation, um, going into Labe and, um, and there were a lot of, there were, there were posters for a lot of different candidates, but, but people who had previously been, really skeptical about Selu Dalanjalo or that I had often heard disparage him or saying he's just a thief like the other thieves. He only cares about himself. People really started to say, um, 
know, when Selu comes to power, everything is going to be okay. Um, all the Guinea's problems are going to be solved and Fulbay everywhere from all over the world are going to all come home. And even when I would tell people about my research and say, well, I'm researching Fulbay migration all over the world, people would sometimes say with all seriousness, oh, but that's going to be over soon. That's going to be over. The migration is going to be over soon because Selo Dalin is going to come to power and we're all going to come home. So, so I, I write in this chapter about how um, and I have no way of knowing how intentionally this was, but Selu Dalin's campaign tapped into really powerful historical narratives about how full they saw themselves um, and as as migrants all over the world, but whose home was also very important to them. Also how they saw themselves within the Guinean nation state, like as as Guineans, but also as people who had been able to... Um, to improve and develop the Futa Jalon in, in what they said were ways that people from other regions had not been able to do, um, partly due to this influx of, of money from migration. Um, and, and that they were, there was this, I mentioned the narrative of Fulbe having been persecuted by Sekou Toure, the first president. Um, a lot of Fulbe were using, were, were talking about that and then saying, this is a justification for now we deserve to be in power and it's our turn. There has never been a Fulbe president of Guinea, but it's our turn. And this kind of became a refrain of it's our turn was just echoing everywhere. So, so within the space of a few months, it really became... Um, it went from indifference or even dislike of, of this one particular candidate to the whole region and, and Fube even abroad, really joining in this kind of fervent movement for trying to get him elected. Even though, and th- this was the public conversation about it, um, even though some people did privately say to me, you know, I don't actually like this guy. I think he is a thief. Um, I think he is selfish and he didn't do much and I don't know that he's going to do much, but this is what the whole community has decided. And, and now who they are together. And for a long time we were divided, but now we're together. So I'm, I'm a part of that. And so it was really interesting to hear these different levels of, of the conversation about why people were supporting him and and what it meant to them. Great. And of course, the, the Fulbe candidate, you know, he, he did not win. Um, and now I know there's been some pretty dramatic uh, events in Guinea as of late. So can you kind of share maybe any insight you have on kind of what's currently happening? And, you know, have you been in touch with sort of the, the people um, in Futajalan or Dakar and kind of how are they interpreting what is happening? Yeah. Um, so, so right. As you say, Salo Dalanjalo, the Fubi candidate, he didn't win. Um, Alpha Conde won and Conde and Salo Dalanjalo ended up facing each other again at the next presidential election in 2015 and Conde again won. Um, and then Conde's term was supposed to have been up, um, after another five years, but he, in 2019, changed the constitution to allow himself to run again. So in 2020, he again ran um, for president, again, against Selo Dalanjalo, and again, Conde won. Um, 
But there were a lot of protests um, in Guinea about this. People um, in, in Conakry and in other cities throughout the country, there was a lot of resistance to this idea of of Conde um, changing the constitution to let himself take a third term. And um, as, as people who have follow um, West African news know, this is, this is kind of a familiar story is something that has happened in other countries where a president will change the constitution um, and then allow himself to just kind of keep running for president. Um, and that hasn't ended well for a lot of these leaders who have done this. And so um just this past September, so about almost exactly a month ago, there was another military coup in Guinea and Alpha Conde was deposed and there is currently um, a junta in power and the, the junta leader, um, uh, Mamadi uh, Dumbuya, was just had himself sworn in as president um, about a week ago. And um, and he has put in a, a, a transition government into place, um, and supposedly no one involved in the transitional government will be allowed to run for election in the whatever government comes next, which we don't have any details about what that will be. So, so on the one hand, um, Conde had become increasingly controversial, and in some circles in Guinea increasingly unpopular, kind of regardless of ethnicity. I think there are a lot of people who want to make this a simplistic story about um, two major ethnic groups um, competing with each other, but um, but it's really a lot more complicated than that, as, as I've kind of been describing in some ways. Um, he, um, so there are a lot of people who are happy that Conde is no longer in power, definitely. Um, but Guineans have also experienced really um, uh, extreme violence at the hands of military in the past. Um, so just from the protests last year where there were um, uh, several fatalities among civilians um, to the the massacre that I mentioned in 2009, where at least 150 people died, um, dozens of women were raped. Um, some people think that it was more than that, that those numbers are very conservative. Um, even um, a couple of years before that, in um, January and February 2007, the Guinean military had, um, had acted very violently and harshly against civilian protesters um, during a series of strikes at that time. So, so Guineans, I think they, in some ways they're very practical. Um, you know, if there's a way for a leader that they don't like to be removed from power, then, you know, it, it makes sense to kind of accept that and to, um, applaud whoever's doing it. And, um, and certainly, um, Colonel Dumbuya, the now, president of Guinea, um, he's gotten some applause for that in, in, a, in some circles of Guinea. Um, he's also gotten plenty of skepticism. Um, I mean, given what Guineans have experienced at the hands of the military, they're not going to uncritically um, sit back and watch as another military dictator tries to um, strong arm himself into retaining 
um, disposition. So, so just because the junta removed from power a president who people didn't like or had become unpopular doesn't mean that people necessarily are going to like the new military junta, if that makes sense. So, so there are cheers about, there are people cheering on the streets, videos about people cheering on the streets um, when this junta came into power. Um, but we shouldn't take those uncritically. We should kind of see them for what they are, that, that people are happy that Conde is gone, but they want something better. Um, it's not like people want to have a military government in power indefinitely because they've had that. Um, that's how second president Lansana Conte came to power and he ended up staying for 24 years. Um, and by the end of it, um, people were very, um, tired and, um, and really, um, uh, had lost a lot of faith in the state that they had previously had during the socialist period. So, um, so it's complicated, um, I, I think it's worth keeping an eye on Guinea and seeing what happens there next. Um, I, I'm hearing from, from the people that I'm still in touch with, I'm hearing that, um, that yeah, on the one hand, it's, it's a great Condé's gone. They don't like him. Um, but on the other hand, um, there's, there's some ruefulness about, um, you know, how, why is it that in Guinea, um, that we can't have just kind of a normal, um, democratic transition. Why didn't all of this international attention that's happening now because of the coup, why didn't that happen last year uh, or in 2019 when Conde was changing the constitution to be allowed to run again? You know, why wasn't there so much international outcry at that point? Um, and then just a, a kind of weariness um, that how, you know, how much longer do they have to um, deal with, with this kind of political, um, you know, drama and and well meanwhile there's still you know if guinea is the so-called richest country in the world people are still not seeing the benefits from that so um and needless to say the kind of massive homecoming that people had predicted in the footage alone with the 2010 elections that never happened um and people still want to go abroad um which has gotten increasingly difficult even though it was already difficult before um and and yeah, I think it's worth trying to see you know, what happens and, and keep paying attention to Guinea. Well, Professor Fiorata, um, we've taken up uh, a lot of your time. Um, and I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Take care. Thank you so much.